Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, but Vladimir Putin's forces have been nibbling at the edges of the country since 2014. Or one could say that the war began, quote, long before 2014 by way of colonial imperial politics, suppression of language cultures, mass hunger, and terror, as the poets Carolyn Forche and Ilya Kaminsky write in the introduction to their new anthology of contemporary Ukrainian poetry, In the Hour of War. This is a poetry marked by a radical confrontation with the evil of genocide, they write. Does poetry have the tensile strength to embody such a confrontation? The anthology seeks to answer that question with the help of its diverse contributors. Soldier poets, rock star poets, poets who write in more than one language, poets whose hometowns have been bombed and who have escaped to the West, poets who stayed in their hometowns despite bombardments, poets who have spoken to parliaments and on TV, poets who refused to give interviews, poets who said that metaphors don't work in wartime, and poets whose metaphors startle. Carolyn Forche joins us this week on the podcast to talk about the surprising, life-giving force of these poems. Thank you so much for talking to me, Carolyn. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious how this collection came about. I understand you used to teach Ilya Kaminsky for many years. Ilya and I met in the mid-90s in a summer program, the Summer Institute in Saratoga Springs, New York. He came to a poetry workshop of mine, uh, and he was quite young. I think he was 19 or something at the time. He was my student for a number of years, and then I became his student, and we're very dear friends, and we traveled to Ukraine together in 2004. We're in very close touch. Uh, He's a, a lovely person and a dear friend and a brilliant poet. And he, um, in the early days of the war, we were on email together often. We both suffered insomnia and had a vigilance because of the war. We were uh, awake at night, scrolling and finding out what was happening, on, you know, which cities were under bombardment and so on. And Eskold Melnicek, who, whose parents are from Ukraine, is the publisher of Aerosmith Press. And I've also been in touch with him because we work together on behalf of democracy and suffrage and voting rights with Writers for Democratic Action. So I said to Askold, we would very much like to do something for Ukraine, perhaps an anthology of Ukrainian poets writing in the moment. And he said, yes, we'll do that. So I contacted Ilya, and we began to gather the materials. And we were awake all night reading poems and thinking about how many poets can we can we include in an anthology of 50 pages. And we, we included 27 poets. So I think if it hadn't been for Ilya and working with someone I knew so well um, under the duress of, of the war, you know, Ilya traveled back to Ukraine last summer during the war. And both of us were so affected by it. I don't think we could have pulled it off, but we, but we did. And we we wrote an introduction together, something I've never done before. And the cover is a painting. I was staying with a friend, a painter in 
France last summer, and he was doing a series of rooms that were beautiful and spare and swept out. They were giant canvases done in um, in acrylics, and and there was this one painting, and the room had a hole in its wall, jagged with debris, and in the far side of the house was a window open to the sky. And I said, what's that? It's so different from the others. And he said, I don't know. I, I began to paint that at the beginning of the present invasion of Ukraine. I think it's Ukraine somehow has gotten into my mind. And I said, may I have that painting for the cover of the anthology? And he said, yes. So all of this was quite magical. I wonder how difficult it was to choose only 27 poets because... Poetry seems quite embedded in Ukrainian culture. I mean, the book copy says it, quote, owes its existence, at least in part, to a poet. So <laughs> That's right. So I I think, well, it was, it was difficult, but we, we decided to only have one or two poems by each poet so that we could introduce as many as possible, and most of them are living. So uh, they had to be already in translations. Uh, available translations. And that really limits you if you're working in English in the United States, where very little of the world's literature is published in translation. So that narrowed it down for us more than any other factor, I think. Mm. Well, I would love if you could introduce us uh, in verse to one of the poets who actually opens the collection. Um, This is the poem, In the Hospital Rooms of My Country. Yes, uh, this is Lesik Panachuk, and it is translated by Ilya Kaminsky and Katie Ferris. In the hospital rooms of my country, letters of the alphabet go to war, clinging to one another, standing up, forming words no one wants to shout, sentences that are blown by the minds in the avenues, stories shelled by multiple rocket launches. A Ukrainian word is ambushed. Through the broken window of the letter A, other countries watch how the letter E loses its head, how the roof of the letter M falls through. The language in a time of war can't be understood. Inside this sentence is a hole No one wants to die. No one speaks. By the hospital bed of the letter N lies a prosthesis it's too shy to use. You can see the light through the clumsily sewn-up holes of the letter F. The soft sign has its tongue torn out due to disagreements regarding the etymology of torture. There is too much alphabet in the hospital rooms of my country. Too much, too much alphabet. No place to stick an apostrophe. Paint falls off the walls, showering us with words incomprehensible like men who, in wartime, refuse to speak. Um, I do know something about this poet. He wrote that... um, He was coming from the Kiev region. Some of the soldiers went through Chernobyl, the zone of the disaster, and unfortunately took some things with them to Bukha, 
the town that was under siege and so destroyed during the attack. And for instance, a flask with radioactive substance stolen from Chernobyl nuclear plant was found by a Buka citizen in his household after the liberation. So Elia asked, how can poetry describe something like this? How can language speak of a country that's bombarded while the rest of the world looks on? The whole of the time we were gathering these poems, the whole of Ukraine was under shell fire and bombardment. People were being killed, wounded, maimed. Women were being raped. The whole time we were gathering this. And we had that in mind. That was informing our our energy and our dedication to this. Yeah, it seems like so many of the poems are an interrogation of of language, of how you can describe something so awful in words, and, and even how words can be useful in the time. Ilya says, this is something that I'm, I love because of my, my work with Poetry of Witness, which is really a way of reading the work of poets who have endured conditions of extremity and emerged from them and took pen to paper. And it's the way in which these experiences are legible in their poems in the aftermath. And Ilya said, the poetry is a seismograph, and it's detecting the turmoil within, the disruptions within the souls of the poets. Their poetry is registering their experience in the present time, in the present moment. I haven't worked ever before so much with poems written in the moment about the extremity. Most of the work I had done was historical. So this was very interesting to me as a a deepening of my thinking about what poetry of witness really means and what it can be. How has it been different, do you think? Well, this reminds me, it's, it's somewhat... Um, there was a Bosnian poet, Sem Mamadinovich, and he wrote a book called Sarajevo Blues, and that was really a report from the siege of Sarajevo. And, you know, you have people who've written reports from cities under siege in the past, and this is that. This is the, a report from an invasion, from siege. And what it does is it's much more immediate. There's urgency. There's a discernible intensity in the work. It isn't written in the aftermath, and so there's no time for the gathering within that happens usually when we're writing poetry. Usually poets have waited some time, and within them the experience has joined together with the literature they've read and everything else they've experienced and, and their knowledge of the language. In this moment, the poems do not connect in that way. Instead, they strike us in the heart very immediately with the present moment of suffering. It will take me a long time to work this out, I think, but but it was fascinating to see this happen and, and to have met some of these poets and translators now. I, in the early days of the invasion, the present invasion, um, we had Zooms with poets in Ukraine, Ilya and I and a few others. And it was like looking at an apartment house in each 
In each box there in each was a window of the apartment house, and it was filled with poets. In some of the windows you could hear the bombardment in the background. In some of the windows the poets were worried about losing their internet and, and blacking out, and, and in some of the windows they were already in exile. So there was no sound of bombardment. But there was a, a shared, uh, quiet, very soulful camaraderie among them. And, you know, they would, when we first came on the Zoom, people were nodding and smiling and shrugging their shoulders. And there was very little that could be said at that moment that would be commensurate with what people were fearing and feeling. And I wondered about these Zooms because we read poetry to each other and I thought, how useful is this? You know, it's in the middle of aerial bombardment and we're reading poems, but that's what was necessary in that time. The poets really just wanted us to be there in real time with them across the world in another country reading poetry. And they told us later that this really helped in that moment. So, you know, I've always wished I was doing something more useful, you know, that I had gone to medical school or gone to law school, something that would allow me to do something, to do this human rights work in the most difficult places in a more useful way. And now I'm realizing how how deeply useful poetry is, even though it's not meant to have a use other than to express in language the most compressed and musical knowledge of the human soul. So many of these poets have taken on other roles in the midst of the war. And those are roles that you don't necessarily need training for. You know, you just need heart. You just need motivation and like a sense of community. And what else does poetry create? That's right. And the poets, um, the first poets that we were in Zoom with didn't, most of them had not left Ukraine. Mm-hmm. The poets decided to stay. I was really in awe of them. They said, well, what, what kind of poet would leave their country in a time like this? I was in Beirut during the war in the early 80s, and I remember someone telling me that, well, we're sorry there are no poets for you to meet here because the poets have all been forced out of the country. They're all gone. They're in exile. And and one of the doctors in one of the refugee camps said to me, that really bothered people when the poets left. That really scared them and worried them. So I thought, good for you. Ukrainian poets are going to try to stay as long as they can. And they got involved in all kinds of tasks, helping people move about the country and move out of the country, helping gather supplies and food, helping to distribute. They did everything they could do, and that's still happening. And Ilya has spent all of his time raising funds and sending money and and communicating with friends and family back in Ukraine to find out what they need. So this has been a constant work since February 24th, 2022. Mm. I, I keep calling it the present invasion because, of course, this war began in 2014 in our contemporary period. It's just that no one was paying attention until the full-scale invasion invasion in 2022. Yeah, I was struck reading the poems that they all felt like they could have been written in the past year, you know, in that time that you were assembling poems, but they weren't, you no. know. Mm. The Serhii Jadan poem is from 
2014. Right. Very, from that first invasion. From the first invasion. Yes. And it's, I appreciated that in the collection there are no dates. Right. Because you're reading it and you don't know. Oh, I wanted to say something about the order. We didn't put it in order of birth date or in order of the alphabet. We noticed that the poems themselves, arranged in a particular way, told a story. And you could actually read this book like a novella from front to back. And it begins with the alphabet in the hospital rooms, and it ends with lines having to do with everyone writing and everyone I know is writing. So that was the arrangement. The other thing is that there are very many magical coincidences in the book. For example, that Ludmila Kershonsky who was um, one of the early poets in the volume, was actually Ilya's first English teacher in 1993 in Odessa. Yes. And he said, well, she, I didn't learn very well. I was not a very good student. <laughs> he is now a very good speaker of English. Of course, he's a brilliant poet in English. But she was his first English teacher. And, um, and the other thing is that her husband, Boris, very moving, is a native Russian speaker, as are many of the Ukrainians from the east and, and the southern cities, uh, especially the cities under most heavy bombardment, and they are all united in defending their country. Boris Kershonsky gave up his own language and began writing and speaking in Ukrainian his second language. Ilya said, what does it mean for a poet to leave their language? Is it like leaving any place at all, like leaving a country or leaving home or leaving a culture? What kind of effect does it have on the poet to leave their language deliberately during this period and to speak a second language? I mean, I know that this happens for poets who go into exile, Normally, they don't start writing in another language, however, with very few brilliant exceptions. But most poets write their poetry in the language of their mother tongue. Yeah. I was so moved by the last poem. I would have asked you to read it, except I feel like we won't get the sense of it, because this is, this is New Song of Silence by Anastasia Afanasieva. We can try. Sure, she, I would love to try. Well, one thing we won't get, which is the translator's note, is that this poem is written by Afanasieva as she was escaping Kharkiv under heavy bombardment. And the poem begins in Russian and ends in Ukrainian as a gesture of the poet's refusal to continue writing in the language of the occupier, which is just incredible. And I'm so happy that you segued into that and that you noticed that because she also gave up her language. New Song of Silence. It was evening. When we left, it was evening. And snow fell into a time where Russian ship drowned and dogs were tossed at us. We weren't heroes or soldiers. We run. And behind us, memories stood among bombed-out grocery stores and streets which still had our faces. We were the last from our bomb shelter who dared to jump into the car Cats, dogs, mothers, a snake wrapped in a wool blanket. We were the last who stopped, listening to the whistle of bombs. Stopped, falling to the floor with prayers on a torn lip in the half-second when the bomb is already dropped but didn't reach the target. 
the first who stopped memorizing the noises of airplanes, distinguishing the sound of missile from that of a bomb, between the sound of the shuttered teacup and the tune of an iron wing, the difference between quiet and the waiting. It's evening when my story stops. We were the last from our bomb shelter who did not stay to listen to explosions of air cells and drove where the quiet still breathes. With our days in a backpack, we drove while listening to the mechanical motion of our ideas, to the sound of blood in our veins, the sound of blood across our planet's memory, the sound of that which we call our day. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. With every step of time, with every drop the earth cleanses memory, cleanses our need to live on, cleanses memory, cleanses our need to live on, as we are building a barricade inside our lungs from the enemy's language, which is now stained with drops of blood. Language. Zaraj, zalinapane nashikrovu. With drops of our blood. Now our hatred is deeper than the bowls of earth we are forgetting the language in which we wrote our poems. I am glad to forget, yes. Raza, Zabiti, to move that language in which Bilo Naprsano Vji Moi Virici, in which I wrote all my poems. Goodbye, mutant bear, fascist with a Soviet smile, and spine in form of the letter Z. Now you are alone, Titepur Samna, Samish Saboy. Eat your own tail. Thieves and executioners, language will be chased to your lair, and if you eat them up, a song will be heard, the new song of quiet, which, at what cost to our hands, I won't say it out loud, this cost, I am writing, and all my people are writing. Yeah. Have you spoken to the poet or the translator about that work, about sort of the, the difficulty of getting... I haven't had an opportunity to do that, but I hope to, because I don't know what it might have taken to translate from two languages, but I did feel a shift in the English. And I'm not exactly sure where it comes, somewhere around tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. You know, that's the strength, I think, of translation, is being able to get that yes. sense across. yes. What is the story you think the collection is telling? Because I, I noticed certain motifs that came up repeatedly. We've got silences. We have a lot of backpacks either being filled or emptied. There are Ukrainian herbs that crop up all over it. Um, sent some grandmothers around. Uh, what are the, what's the story you think the collection is ultimately trying to tell? And animals, the pets, mm, yeah. because they're very devoted to pets like we are, mm -hmm. and they wanted to take the pets with them, and they did. You saw the little kittens tucked in the jackets and the dogs peeking out of the backpacks. And um, Well, what happens in this volume is that first the language is wounded, and then there's a story of flight in an emergency, a people not knowing how long they would be away in the beginning. So there are poems about what do we take with us, what should we take, and there are poems about what I first thought to take, and then I realized I didn't need those things anymore. And so we have a, a people 
getting ready to leave a country quickly with whatever they can carry and not knowing what they should treasure, what will still be left, what, they'll, what they're leaving behind, and also where they're going, what they'll need. So there's an interrogation of this question. Um, what do we need to take with us and what would we like to preserve from the past? And then there's the defiance. There's a note of defiance through the work. Nowhere here do I discern a, a thought that this resistance might not succeed. Everywhere through these poems, uh, the poets are convinced that in the end, Ukraine will be saved and they will prevail. So that's there. And and an attention to the generations. It's a very, families are very important. The elderly are very important. So the grandmothers, very strong. I had uh, an Eastern European grandmother myself, Anna, from Slovakia. And many of the grandmothers in this book remind me of her. So we have um, a desperate feeling of... Um, of a flight of resistance, of agony and suffering, but of also of a people intent on defending their country and their lives and each other. And one of the things that was so impressive was that, you know, I'm, there was a time when communities didn't in within Ukraine perhaps you know, had conflicts, whether they were Russian-speaking or Ukrainian-speaking or whether they were Jewish or Christian. Uh, in this moment, what we saw was that the civic turn that this country made toward democracy, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, this country claimed itself and began to build a civil society, and that civil society remained intact when the in, when the present invasion happened in 2022 what we saw was a all of the communities within ukraine banding together to build the barricades to make the molotov cocktails to get people out to, to put the grandmothers on the trains to get the children out to round up the little dogs and cats and in the one poem there's a snake <laughs> wrapped in a blanket um and what you see in ukraine which i think the Russians are trying to counter with their own propaganda is uh, unity. Russian speakers are defending Ukraine. And, and that is, it's, it's so impressive that this civil society grew up within a few decades and they're very dedicated to their democracy. And I, as a person who believes in democracy and works in support of democracies, I really feel in solidarity with them, and I feel buoyed by them. I feel that they are giving me hope that we won't lose our democracy here, you know, that they were managing to keep it in the midst of warfare. And so, you know, there's hope. There are people all over the world who believe in democratic principles, and this is what Ukraine is defending. It's defending its democracy against an authoritarian dictator. Ukraine has had a language and culture for hundreds of years. And so I, I thought that bringing a volume of poetry written in Ukrainian and in Russian would be a very important uh, signal in this moment that we acknowledge this unity. <laughs>
There's a link in the show notes to In the Hour of War, edited by Carolyn Forche and Ilya Kaminsky. Amanda Holmes recorded one of the selections from the anthology that Carolyn mentioned for our other podcast, Read Me a Poem, Serhi Zidane's Take Only What is Most Important. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.